0: Okay, so, um, just, I have to, I feel like I have to say this at the beginning. Um, Spoiler alert. I will spoil every major plot point from a 13-year-old movie today. So, if you're a little behind on your movies, I apologize. We're going to spoil a movie, but that's not coming for quite some time. Go ahead and start turning to the book of Job. Uh, you may be saying you were in Genesis last week talking about Adam and Eve. Why are we talking about Job next? Job is like way into this whole Old Testament thing. Like this is so far. You know, I say turn to Job. Now I got to hold on. Genesis Exodus Numbers Joshua Ezra Nehemiah Esther Job. Okay, I didn't mark it because I'm smart like that. There he is. There's Job. So, uh, But Job, the events that occurred in Job and the writing of Job is actually like the earliest written part of the Bible. So so we can assume that creation came first, but probably sometime right after Adam and Eve, um, the events that we're going to talk about today in the life of Job are what took place. Um, So when you all inevitably go in a couple of years to seminary, because you've been so enthused By the clever teaching Of your pastors here at Christ Reconciled Church And you're all like I gotta know more, I gotta study more I'm gonna go take a bunch of seminary classes Because you're all naturally gonna do that Right? I mean that's just now it's, it's just kind of what you're gonna do But when you go there, especially if you take online Like I did, you're gonna have these discussion boards and stuff And they're gonna ask you these Super difficult, open-ended Questions that are very Thought-provoking, trying to make you kind of Critically assess your understanding of who God is. And it's not like a, do you agree, yes or no? It's going to be something that's going to make you have to think and probably write many, many paragraphs to try to explain what it is that's going on inside your head. One of those questions might sound something like this. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? If so, then he's impotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then why is there evil? You're going to have to answer that question at some point in your seminary study. That question, and I, and I tweeted that we're going to do like 2,000 years of church history before the end of point one. That's true. We're going to take a very specific look in church history, though. That quote comes from a Scottish philosopher named David Hume. Um, who is trying to um, articulate this thing called the problem of evil. It sounds really epic, right? The problem of evil. How are we going to deal with this? Because he's trying to understand how there can be this God who presents himself as as good and loving and caring for his creation. And all powerful, but yet there's evil in the world. Kind of asking the question, why why do bad things happen when there's a good God? That's the question that he's trying to answer. I mean, and this is the kind of question that's been asked for thousands of years. Even going back to 8300, uh, there was a, philosopher, a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And he was trying to kind of logically wrap his brain around the presence of evil inside God's creation. And he says, if an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent God exists, then evil does not in his mind. Point two, there is evil in the world. So therefore... An omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent God cannot exist. This is kind of the thought process that people have been struggling with for thousands of years. Even further back, while Jesus was still walking on the earth, uh, his disciples were trying to wrap their heads around why evil, pain, suffering, difficulty, um, sin, why these sorts of things happened to to certain people. Uh, We're going to come back to this verse later on, but in John chapter 9... Verses one and two, it says, he passed by and saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So for thousands of years, the church has been trying to answer this question. Why do bad things happen? Why is there evil present in the world, both, both evil that happens to us and evil that happens because of us, like moral evil and then just like the brokenness of creation that, that we, we, we get sick, or or bad things happen, or like we talked about last week, like when you're trying to work a field, you get stuck by a thorn. Even things as small. Why does that even happen if there is a God who says that he is all-powerful and good? And we bring this up because, because today, we're going to look in the life of Job. And I'm going to kind of talk us through some of the circumstances that happened in his life. Um... Because we're going to find ourselves asking, why did all this stuff happen to Job? All the things that I'm about to tell you about, we're going to ask, why? And then by analyzing what, hopefully, we're going to look at what the Bible says. We're going to look at what God says, because that's kind of our intent to see how God reveals himself to us in the Old Testament, right? What God says about himself. So we're going to look in the scripture, and today, I'm proud to say we're going to solve the problem of evil. We laugh, right? No, but really, I really think, I think, I think when we take all these scriptures together and we just say, let's see what the Bible says, I think scripture paints a very clear message about why there is evil present in the world. And I'm not going to tell you what my conclusion is yet. I want you to think about what you think, and then we'll challenge what you think with scripture, and we'll see kind of where we all land at the end. Does that sound good? So, so here's the first thing. Bad things happen. Evil is present, but why? So when you get to Job chapter 1, the opening section of chapter 1 kind of describes who Job was. And it basically describes him as blameless and upright. This was a good guy. So much so, he was so in tune with the will of God that, that if his kids, because he'd been, he'd been blessed with, with, with all sorts of wealth. He had large herds, large flocks, all these animals, big house, large family. He'd really been blessed. He had all of this stuff, but he was so in tune with the will of God that if his kids would even have their friends over to have a party, the next day he would go offer sacrifices for each of his kids just in case while they were having the party, they had a stray thought that might have been offensive to God. He so was concerned with the holiness and the righteousness of his family. That, that he was going to take no chances. He wanted to make sure that his family was in good standing with God. He was so interested in making sure that he was in tune with the Spirit of God. Right? So, so I mean, if anybody's going to be described as a good guy, this guy was a good guy. Blameless. Upright. But even as he continued this kind of upright life, this, this good life, this, this, this life seeking to know and understand and follow the will of God, all in one day, and, and you can go read this. We're not going to read it all right now because there would be a lot of reading. We already have a lot of verses ahead of us. But in one day, like one servant comes up and says, hey, somebody came up and ran off with all of your herd. Hey, somebody came up, killed all of your crops. Hey, somebody came and stole all of your sheep. Hey, your kids were all having a party in the same house, and all of a sudden a great wind came and knocked the whole house over, and they're all dead. Like it even says, if you read it, it says, while this servant was telling him this, another servant came up. While this servant was telling him this, another... So you have to imagine. This is in like within like five, ten minutes. He's told... Oh, by the way, you've just lost everything. everything. Uh, a little time later, he finds himself afflicted with this like skin disease that it describes as going from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Like he's just in agony, like like he's like pulling off sticks and stuff, trying to just like scratch at these sores and itchy things on his back. It's like like think of think of the grossest kind of skin disease that you could imagine possible, and then... That's where he is. So he loses everything. He loses his help. He's in a really awful place. This leads Job to, uh, he doesn't even seek the counsel of his friends, but his friends, his wife come around. and uh, It's so bad for him that his wife even says to him, you ought to just curse God and die. Like you ought to just try to say something so mean to God that he'll just kill you so that you don't have to suffer through this Anymore. And and, and through all of this, he he doesn't curse God. He doesn't, he he remains upright, like he remains seeking the will of God. He doesn't understand why this is happening. But all these people around him are asking him, What is it that you did to deserve this? Why? What sin did you commit? Like, like search your soul. Surely you have done something that has so offended God that he has decided to to allow these things to happen to you. The way the church tries to answer this question, why did this evil happen? Why is evil present? There's a, there's a really seminary sounding word that we use to describe it, it's called a theodicy. And a theodicy, uh, it, when you translate it, it literally means justifying God. It's a way to justify the presence of God while there is evil present as well Basically saying we can justify that God we, We're, we're going to try to explain Why God's in the clear Though there's evil present And there have been a bunch of different Types of theories that have kind of Tried to Justify the presence of evil And the presence of God uh, One of those and this is probably one That, that many of us have heard uh, Is a free will theodicy That, that humans have free will and, and when God created us he gave us uh, the ability to pick and choose which direction that we would go. And so, so God, because he gave us this free will, left us to our own desires, and so we were able to, to choose evil and to go down this path uh, away from what God would have desired. Uh, so, so, that, so that God isn't responsible for our sin, we're solely responsible for our sin and the evil that's present in the world because, because we were created with a free will to pick and choose where we would go. Uh, there's another one called the Deuteronomic Theodicy, and that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'll read you these two, two verses. One is verse 2, uh, and the idea behind this is that God blesses or judges based on our obedience. Uh, verse 2, and this is kind of the mindset that, that Job's friends and family kind of brought to him. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse 2, uh, And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Um, Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So so scripture even kind of suggests the mindset of those who obey God will be blessed and those who don't obey God will be cursed. And, and that's the kind of the mindset, I think, that kind of traveled into John chapter nine when the disciples were asking Jesus, what did this guy do that he's been cursed to be born blind? You know, uh, I think that's a little bit of a limiting way to look at that, and we'll hopefully get a bigger picture of the way to respond to that here in just a minute. But, but there's kind of this, you do good, good happens. You do bad, bad happens. So, there, so then how do we justify what's happening with Job where he's doing good and bad things are happening to him? Uh, we'll see. Uh, there's a, an Augustinian theodicy. Augustine was um, pastor of a church. Uh, Long time ago, who who really tried, who was one of the first guys to really put a lot of theology into really, I think, helpful terms. When you get to the the Protestant Reformation, a couple thousand years, uh, like a thousand years after Augustine, they kind of reference back to a lot of his theology as they were kind of forming why they think they thought they should split from the Catholic Church. But the Augustinian theology says that, that the creation of good allows for the presence of evil. So kind of the idea that like if you If you turn on a flashlight, you've created light, but you've also created shadows at the same time. So that God, by creating good, created the possibility of evil. And then there's, I just saw it labeled this, so don't take that as me saying this is absolutely the right one, but I just saw it labeled this. Then there's the biblical theodicy, which is that God is sovereign, He's in control of everything. And you may be saying, What do you mean by everything? Well, we'll we'll get there. So why do bad things happen? Let's look at the conversation in Job chapter 1 that took place prior to Job facing all of this evil that surrounded him in his life. So we're going to read Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them the Lord said to Satan from where have you come Satan answered the Lord and said from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it and the Lord said to Satan have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil then Satan answered the Lord and said does Job fear God for no reason Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. And and in chapter 2, what you see is a very similar conversation where Satan comes back and says, Yeah, so I took all that away, and he didn't complain. Can I, can I like afflict him now? And God says, do what you want to him, right? So here's the thing that I want us, here's the question that we have to ask. First of all, it's fascinating here that we're learning about what God desires as he is speaking. Remember, we're talking about God speaking to created beings in this series. And here it's him speaking and revealing his wishes to Satan, his enemy, the one who thought that he could ascend and be as good as God and was cast out of heaven, right? Enemy of God is sitting here walking around talking with God in heaven. And God's like, hey, have you seen Job? He's a really good guy. (coughs) Satan didn't ask permission. That's the second thing I want us to notice. He didn't say, can I do this? God pointed Job out to Satan. So wait, you're saying... God brought this up, that this was God's idea, that it wasn't that Satan walked up thinking, I want to ask if I can pick on Job. It was that God said, hey, Satan, I got a guy that I want to prove to you loves me. So I want you to do some evil stuff to him. Wait, is that what you're saying? Surely you mean that God just allowed it to happen. But Satan didn't ask about Job. God suggested Job. God called out to Satan and said, Have you thought about Job? Have you thought about testing his resolve? Because I know that he's blameless and upright. You're like, okay, maybe I see where you're going. But, But God doesn't say it directly. God doesn't say, I want you to do something evil to Job. That's not how the conversation goes. Well, we can always turn over to Isaiah 45. If you want to turn there, you're more than welcome. I will turn there really quickly. Isaiah chapter 45. Um, Here, this is God talking about how he is going to use a wicked king to afflict his people. Okay? So God's saying, I'm going to use... Somebody who does not love me, somebody who is evil in his heart to afflict my people because they've sinned. So I'm going to read Isaiah 45, we're going to do 1 through 7. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will, give it, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes of secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I actually like the way the King James Version renders verse seven better. So I'm going to read it to you. I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. The word there for evil, the Hebrew word ra, is the same word used that we read last week when we were talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, when, we, when, when you read about, about the time when Noah was on the earth and it says that, that and every man's heart was only evil always, that's the same word that God is using there when he says, I make peace and create evil. So in both of these contexts, God's saying that God, God creating the situation to where Satan afflicts, causes evil to happen to someone, and the situation with Cyrus where A wicked king is going to afflict his people, is going to do evil. Because it says, you don't know me. You're doing this and you don't know it's me, but I'm the one who's in charge here. I'm the one who's in control. In both of these instances, it seems to be saying that God creates the evil and the bad things that are happening in both of these situations. The bad things that happen to people and the evil that people commit. Now you ask the question, but wait, how is that fair? Why would he do that? After Job faced all this tragedy, he got a bunch of really bad counsel. Like the next, like, so we read chapters one and two, and that's kind of the story. And then, like chapter three for like 35 chapters, is basically just Job having a conversation with some of his friends. Um, they're giving him some really bad counsel, saying, You've obviously done something wrong here, Joe. You, Joe, I call him, they call him Joe for short. Because <laughs> they're close, you know. You've obviously sinned. There's obviously something going on in your life. You just need to confess your sin. You need to repent. And Job's like, I've done nothing. And over time, they go back and forth having this conversation. And Job, Job, is, Job is, I would think, obviously frustrated with the situation. Obviously wondering why this would happen. Obviously questioning, I don't, know what I, I don't know what happened. I don't know why this would happen to me. I, I don't understand why God would do this to me. And after a great deal of frustration and pain, go ahead and turn to Job chapter 38. Um, we're not going to read all of Job chapter 38. But you should go read God's response to Job. I'm going to read the first few verses here. I love these first few verses it's probably because i'm naturally a sarcastic person that i read sarcasm into this i don't know that god is being sarcastic here however i do think that god is trying to set up the disparity between us and him okay so job chapter 38 my my heading says the lord answers job so job's been talking for 38 37 chapters or whatever job and his friends have been talking and then it says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Okay, I just got a call. So he says, put on your big boy pants. <laughs> right? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you and make it known, and you make it known to me. Right? So, so, so you think you know what's going on, stand up. Put on your big boy pants and explain to me why you think I'm doing this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And we could keep going. But you should go read that. It's more of the same. It's God saying, let me describe how magnificent it was when I just said a word and what was nothing was something. And he's basically saying, can you do that? Are you God? Do you think you understand as well as I do why things happen the way they do? Are you actually going to question my intent? He's basically saying, little man, who thinks he knows what's going on, why don't you just sit there and let me describe to you how powerful and awesome and amazing I am. It's not not really an answer to his question. Like, why did this happen? Because I'm God, is basically what he says. Right? Because I am in authority and I need to show that I am over you and you are a little man. Because you don't get to say what happens to you. I get to say what happens to you because I created you. If you haven't got tired of flipping yet, go ahead and flip to Romans. Chapter 9. In chapter 9 of Romans, and we're not going to read all of it, Paul's explaining to the church that, essentially, that, that God's got this. God is in control. Um, God is, and here's the word that I want us to, to lock onto, God is sovereign. God is in complete control over all his creation. So when bad things happen, we're, we're tempted, right? Like this whole problem of evil Question that we're attempting to answer. This, this, uh, this reasoning, this justification that we're reaching for. This way to say, I want to give God a reason to have done this so that he doesn't, he's not, I don't want to think of a God who's, who's, who's sending all this evil to happen, right? Like It's almost as though we're trying to protect God from himself. And then you get to Romans 9, Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 19 because you find yourself saying, how is that even fair? Like, like, how can it be fair that that God causes evil to happen? How can you be saying that God's in complete control over everything and that I don't have a say in what happens? How is that? How is that fair? How can I be held responsible for evil that I do if God is ultimately in control of every single thing, every single action that I've ever taken? How can that possibly be? That's exactly how I was probably 5 or 6 years ago. Like there is there is no way that that can be right. I got angry when people would try to suggest that it could be anything other than on just my actions and my ability to choose. Get the smirk off your face. Sorry. <laughs> But I was so angered by that idea. How could that even be fair? How could what what God would say, I want your heart and then and then not give you a heart that would desire him. Right. If that if that's the justification, what, why, why would God do that? That doesn't seem that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. And Paul knows that as he's talking about this idea of God being sovereign, Right, As as he's saying that God is in complete control of everything. He just got done with a big section about those he foreknew he predestined. And he he initiated all of these actions. And he's in control of all of these things. He knows that we're going to ask that question. Why? Why is it that way? And in verse 19 he says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So he's saying, You're going to ask the question, Well, if God's the one who picks, if God's the one who chooses, if I don't choose, how can he hold responsible those people who are left in their sins if they never had a choice? How can he find fault with them? Verse 20. And I think this perfectly echoes exactly what God was just saying in Job chapter 38. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? will what is molded say to its molder why have you made me like this has the potter no right over the clay to make it out of the same to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use right just like i prayed earlier i just want to throw this out here i prayed earlier that we would be pliable this morning right that we would be moldable because god is the one who is molding us into some image and, and, and my prayer is that we would be molded to look more and more like his son. So, so, so please keep in mind that I'm suggesting that, that it's God who's molding us. Please be pliable as we're reading this. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Did you get that? So this whole series, we're trying to see what God has has revealed about himself, what God says about his nature, right? God says... Tense. (laughs) Problem of evil. We all need Jesus. Let me look at my notes again. That's right. The sermon series. What is this sermon series about? The sermon series. We're trying to understand about the character of God. We want to know fully who God is. And and what what Paul is suggesting in Romans 9 is that God also wants us to know about every aspect of his character. Right? God also wants us to know about all of these different qualities of his nature. God doesn't just want us to know him as merciful. God doesn't just want us to know him as creative. God doesn't just want us to know us to know him as gracious. He wants us to know everything about him. And God is also a God of wrath, a God who will punish sin, who will punish Rejection of him who will punish separation from him. So, what Paul's saying is, and this is in verse 22, God desiring to show his wrath, right? God wants his creation to see this aspect of who he is as well. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, he wants to show that he does not approve of separation from his will? And he wants to show that he has the power to punish those who would reject him. He, needs to show, he wants to show both of those things. Has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So that's, point, that's, that's thought one. He wants to show every aspect of his nature. So he created some who would be evil so that he could punish sin so that he could show this aspect of who he is. The only way that he could show wrath as a part of his nature was to create evil so that he could have something to punish. But that's not where it stops. Verse 23 And in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. We know what we've been saved from because we've seen the pain and destruction that comes from living a life separate from God. But we only know that because there is evil present within creation. And he's saying, we wouldn't know that about God. We would think that God, was, that God would just let off whatever it is that we would do. If it, like we said last week when we were talking about original sin. If God had let Adam and Eve off the hook after that first one, he is setting us up to just reject him every step of the way, and that's no good. He, he like a good parent, punished sin. And what we're seeing here is he has evil present in the world so that those of us who are saved can know what it is that we've been saved from and appreciate what it is that we've been saved from. So at most points in a sermon like this, whoever's been preaching it is going to try to say, so why is there evil present in the world? And they're going to probably say something a little bit softer, like because God allowed it, right? Or, Or kind of that Augustinian view that we were talking about, because when he created good... The possibility for evil kind of came with that. But everything that I'm reading here says that God is in complete control of all of his creation. God is completely sovereign over everything. So let's not shy away from like what we read in Isaiah chapter 45. It seems to me that the Bible teaches that there is evil and sin because God desired it and created it. Knowing that in the end, he was going to reveal himself to be redemptive and merciful. Because let's revisit John chapter 9, 1 through 3. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Verse 3. This is key. This is it. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God creates these situations. God creates evil so that he might work out something remarkable. All right, so let me set up this clip that we're going to watch. We're not going to play it yet, Ben. Give me just a second. So probably the last good movie that M. Night Shyamalan made. Was signs. Who, saw, who, who has not seen Signs? Let's go with who has not seen it. I am so sorry for what's about to happen. Just as an aside, when we went and saw it in the theaters, it's a good thing that Carla's in the nursery. Because she was so nervous through the whole movie that she like chewed a hole in her jeans. All right, true story, yeah. Chewed a hole in her jeans because she was so tense through this whole movie. So in the movie Signs, we're following this Pastor, father, who has a son who has asthma, like really, really, really bad asthma. Um, A daughter who has this really weird quirk where she'll ask for a glass of water, take one sip, find something wrong with it because she's got this like really peaked out uh, obsessive compulsive. She'll set the water down and say, I need a new glass of water he has a brother who's moved in with him to help take care of his family because his wife was killed in a car accident. In a freak accident where she was running down the road in a car on a road that doesn't have much traffic, swerved off the road at the one point, the only point that this car could have met her and pinned her against a tree. So that she was kept alive long enough for him to come and have one last conversation with his wife, right? And in this conversation, she's telling him all of these things include, and, and, and things that he, at one point, just associates with her brain shutting down, her going into shock. She says, she says, you know, tell this kid to have fun, tell this girl to, to play and be fun and have and smile, tell your brother Merrill uh, to swing away. And he's like, this makes absolutely no sense to me. Why would I tell him to swing away? Well, he was a former baseball player who had moved into their house, he was a former baseball player uh, who had who had struck out too much and, and lost out. So, so he's got all of these bad circumstances around him to the point that because so much evil has taken place in his life, he said, there is no way that there is a God who would allow this much evil. And he, who is a pastor, who has been a pastor, has kind of walked away from his faith for a time and, and rejected God saying, none of this is proof that there is a real God. This is where the story gets weird. So aliens start invading Earth. (laughs) The aliens are coming down. They're all held up inside their house um, thinking they're not going to survive the night. There's all sorts of tension that arises. I'm not going to go through. That's the tensest scene in the whole movie. That's that's by far the scene that gets you the most nervous. We're not going to watch that scene. But they come out of their basement the next morning. They've survived the night um, only to find that one of these aliens right, has been left behind by their brothers, whoever they were, before they ran off and have found their way into his house. right. So this is the climactic scene. This is why I said I'm going to spoil this movie if you haven't seen it. So this is the climactic scene. Um, and all of a sudden... And we're about to watch it. All of a sudden, Mel Gibson's character kind of has this realization about a great many things. It's about four minutes, and I'm looking at my time, and I got it. So let's go ahead and watch this clip. You might need to push the volume a little bit. It's a movie about aliens. But the point that the, um, that the director was trying to make was... And he asked that question right at the beginning. Are you just the person that sees things as coincidence? Or, or do you think that everything that happens, even though it's evil, is working toward a bigger purpose because there is this sovereign creator over everything? Why else would he have a house filled with glasses of water? Why else would his son have asthma? Why else would his, would his wife have died? So that his brother, who was a baseball player, would be in his house. At that, Why would all those things come together if it was just a coincidence? And you saw that struggle that he was having right there at the moment where he was kind of recognizing, oh wait. This evil, this evil that is present in the world doesn't mean that God cannot exist. But actually means that because it's here, it's here so that God can do something with it. We sing a song, we've sung it a couple of times, called Felix Culpa. That phrase Felix Culpa comes from a longer Latin phrase that the Catholic Church tends to recite. And it says, O Felix Culpa, ki, talum et tatum meruit habere redemptorium. And it means, O happy fault that earned for us so great, so glorious a Redeemer. So instead of saying, I don't like God because... He made evil. What if instead we said, how gracious God has been to create this world with evil so that we can know him not only as a God who who punishes sin, but a God who redeems us from sin. And that we wouldn't look at this and be, be angered by the presence of evil in the world or be angered at the presence of sin or be angered at the idea that God is completely sovereign over everything, including those who would, who would choose him or those who would not choose him. He's sovereign over all of it. Instead of saying, I don't like that God. Instead of saying, I would reject that God. What if instead we said, how kind is God to create such an environment that we could know him as the only one who could perfectly redeem us from the evil and sin that surround us? What if that was our response as a church, that we don't, we, don't, we don't push God away because of the presence of evil, but we say, God is sovereign, God is in control, there is evil present, but how good is he that he saves us from it? So let's pray.